Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner, from the University of Southern California. Today, we'll be speaking with Lawrence Stokes, Assistant Professor in the History Department at Northwestern University. Professor Stokes holds a PhD in history from the University of Chicago and has taught at Northwestern since 2017. In addition to various articles and other projects that we'll be hearing about later, Professor Stokes is the author of Fear of the Family, Guest Workers and Family Migration in the Federal Republic of Germany, which appeared earlier this year with Oxford University Press. I'd like to start, um, well, first of all, Lauren, uh, welcome. It's really a a pleasure to to meet you and talk to you. Thanks. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Great. So I'd like to start by giving you an opportunity to tell us about kind of your path, how, how you became a historian how you got interested in the kinds of research questions that really animate your work, and to share any details about that journey that uh, that you'd like to share with us today. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I um, certainly wasn't somebody who grew up anticipating that I was going to be a historian. Uh, I definitely kind of took classes with history professors in college that really turned me on to the fact that it was this discipline that allowed you to do really deep humanistic work, but also to really explore why our world looked the way it looked, um, and to kind of free yourself from assumptions that the way things were now was the way they always had to be, which I guess was really important to me as like an 18 year old who wasn't, who had a lot of criticisms of the world around her. History came to be for me like a way of saying, well, how did we get here and how can we get out of it? Um, And so I uh, majored in history in German and um, went to graduate school to get a PhD in German history. And uh, I think I was really, I knew I was interested in migration and mobility, probably because I had moved around a lot as a kid. Um, So I had the experience of being some form of child migrant in my past. Uh, And so I think when I was reading about migration and German history, I felt like there was this really overly simplistic story about how first there was labor migration and that was fine, we guess, but then there were families and then it was really family migration that created problems. And I felt like that was an oversimplification and I felt like I wanted to peel behind that to see, well, why how did we come to think that family migration caused problems? And were there other ways we could think about family migration? And so that's kind of how I decided I was going to look at family migration. Um, Because migration studies tends to be more interested in like men doing work, uh, male coded work, uh, there isn't as much work on family migration. Uh, It's been kind of a neglected area in migration literature, relatively. So looking into it, I was really pleased to find out that there was as much to say about it as there was here. Um, And I can say at the time, too, I was reading a lot. I was reading a lot of like, 
US-based people who do kind of queer history of migration. I was looking at Nyan Shaw. I was looking at uh, Edna Lubhide. Um, I was looking at Margot Cannaday. And so I really wanted to kind of, and I think too, this was before um, AFA'ala, this was before Marriage for All. So as a kind of queer person, I was like aware that I would never be able to marry a woman and migrate to Germany at the time I started this project. And so I, I think the initial dissertation proposal that became the book says something like, and then in chapter eight, we will deconstruct heterosexuality and show how migration law is structurally heterosexist. And I remember even at the dissertation proposal hearing, my advisor was like, I don't know if you want to write eight chapters. And I think that might be book two. <laughs> and he had a point um, because kind of once I got to the archives, but I think this is still influenced by queer theory. Once I got to the archives, I realized there was so much to say about how heterosexuality was being constructed in migration law that I needed a whole book just to explain that heterosexuality wasn't natural before I could get to um, also law systematically discriminates against queer people. That That's really interesting to hear because it sounds like not only is, I mean, we'll wait and talk about future projects at the end, but you know, this is not just one monograph. It's kind of part of a much larger intellectual project, right? And political project. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. We'll <laughs> I, so. um, I guess we'll see. But uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because it actually, it doesn't come across as a queer history in the end. But what I was reading when I was thinking about this was a lot of queer theory and a lot of queer history, which I think helped me to like peel back that heterosexual marriage isn't a natural form. It's a form that's upheld by like social and legal norms. That's interesting. And that actually is a great way to kind of jump into a, a deeper discussion of the book. Um, and I, because I think one of the things that to me really made the book extraordinary is the way you kind of balance this legal administrative history with personal stories, right. And the kind of how the, the legal structures can only operate in, terms of generalities and all these assumptions about what what's normal, what families should look like and so forth. But once you actually look at this, the stories of the real people who are in the system, you see that they don't, they don't fit into these frameworks, right? And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of balance the perspective of the, you know, the subject positions of the people you're writing about with this kind of more macro story that you're telling. Sure, sure. It's a great question. And it was a real challenge. Um, I think in doing migration history, probably a lot of kinds of history, but the kind I know is migration history, you're kind of reading these state archives. And so you're, you have the state centric view on what's happening. Um, and you realize the state is like invested in putting people in categories and moving those categories around in a way that has to be abstracted, right? It has to be more than the messy details of people's lives or the bureaucracy would collapse in on itself, which it's already, already always perilously close to doing when you look at the archives. <laughs> um, and so it was really important to me in kind of telling the story not to like reenact the violence of those categories and not to say, um, I know why people are migrating and I kind of am telling the state story about them, but to bring in as much stuff from oral histories, from... Um, activist-centered archives from migrant-centered archives that kind of let them speak back and show that it was more complicated than the very complicated legal story I was already trying to tell. Um, so I try not to assume 
individuals' motivations um, when I'm writing about them because I really don't want to reenact what migration bureaucrats do to individuals on the move. Um, but I try to kind of incorporate those two to show that there's more possibilities than the legal archive or the state-centered archive would kind of offer us. And I, I hope the book does that well. Um, I think there's some moments I'm proud of where I think it does work really well, uh, but it was definitely a challenge. And I think it's a challenge for anyone working with uh, this kind of topic where it's really hard to capture people's voices because they haven't been systematically collected by archives. They're not um, people in positions of power who are leaving written records that you can write about. And so it requires a lot of reading against the grain and a lot of creativity. Right. I mean, I can see the perils of you don't want your to deal with the, your subjects as constituted by bureaucratic authorities, right? You want to actually get at who who's really there, but those, those sources can be helpful, but they're problem, you know, it's almost like reading, using colonial archives to write the same kind of issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, I think it, it happens with a lot of people who are working on marginalized subjects in some way. Um, and uh, I think I do this a little bit with like kind of thinking about Margaret Eigenson from the German tradition and kind of autonomy of migration and just thinking like, they're always going to do things the state won't anticipate. And the state is always like running to catch up behind my migrants who are always like, we've invented this new way to like play the bureaucracy against itself and get what we want. And then the state is always the kind of state archive is a story of like two steps behind, but frantically trying to catch up and outrun um, individual creativity and autonomy. I really like the way you put that. And it, um, one of the things that struck me as I was reading the book was the precisely that dynamic you're talking about, how the state is trying to catch up, but but also the opposite in a way where the the state is the the individuals are constantly trying to outmaneuver the state, right? And so it's almost a dance between the two sides. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to put it, and I think that there, you really do see that that it's kind of a, this cat and mouse game constantly, where each is kind of trying to anticipate what the other is going to do next. There's this thing that comes up again and again when the state isn't considering putting new restrictions on the migrant families who are the heart of the book, uh, where the state is like, if we announce this policy, what are they going to do? And then they write kind of like this bureaucratic speculative fiction of like, well, if we announce it, they might do this and they might do that. And they're always trying to guess. They're always trying to anticipate how individuals will react to a policy but their own assumptions are such that they can't, they're, um, they're prevented from seeing the full possibility of ways in which people could actually react to a possibility, right? So like, for example, they have deeply gendered assumptions about what women will do and what men will do that um, are sexist. But that are sexist, but that, um, that really uh, you see people constantly not acting as bureaucrats assume they will because bureaucrats assume that all men will act in one way and all women will act in another way. Yeah. And I think I, I'm not sure if I'll be able to articulate this question as clearly when I speak it as it is in my head right now. But um, what's really fascinating to me is the, the failure of the system and the, the right and the way that the system, the bureaucratic logic can't, it, it sort of keeps creating, it's trying to solve problems, but constantly creating new problems. And it's operating so 
blindly in a way, right? And I, is that just a, a is that a, a West German issue? Is that just how government bureaucracies work? I wonder if you could kind of talk about what what's unique about that, or you know, if there's this is just expressing a kind of larger uh, bureaucratic mentality that we see in the modern world. That's an interesting question, and I'd love to. I mean, I'd love to, I would love to know more about how family migration was regulated in other places. This is a pretty unique book um, because there's not one that quite matches it in any of the other post-war European things. I was kind of constantly, my bureaucrats too were constantly saying, well, this is what Switzerland does. This is what France does. Like we have to be situated if within like a European marketplace of what our migration policies are. And then as a historian, I was like, well, is there a book on Swiss family migration? And there's not. So I was kind of I'm constantly trying to create that own archive myself, seeing what other states did. But the question of bureaucracy is a really interesting one. And I think I don't have a great answer to it. I can say that I, I was really shocked in the archives sometimes by what bureaucrats didn't know. Um, so one of the big findings of the book is that until the 1990s, they don't know how many foreign children are in the country. Uh, they don't require visas or um, residence permits for children under 16. So every time they're trying to guess how many foreign children are in the country and thus how many school places do we have to set up? Uh, how many second generation people might we be dealing with in 10 years? They're always just making guesses. Uh, and I was shocked by that. I, I assumed that they would have had this kind of perfect statistical tabulation of how many foreign children were there every year. And uh, going to the archives, you actually realize they were operating from completely blind information on that and always making up the number of children they thought were in the country based on like what they thought the tiny bits of data they were able to get meant. Uh, and again, that really, I don't think I really believed it. I felt like for years I was just going back to the archives and I was like, okay, but they really, they really know how many foreign kids are here somewhere, don't they? Uh, and years and years, I just kept reading documents that said, no, they don't. Uh, but they're making decisions as if they do. And they have this authority of the expert, right, armed with, in some cases, kind of social scientific methodology or, you know, high positions in different bureaucracies. And yet they're, it's just really striking to me how how ignorant they are about the daily realities. Right. right. And it's, it's interesting, too. This would be a great comparative project for anyone who's listening. Um, in the 1990s, the only countries in the world that are in Germany's position of not requiring visas for kids under 16 are Germany, Switzerland, South Africa, Spain, and Andorra. Like, what is that? <laughs> you know, what, what is that? What is that five about? Like, why are those the five that are holdouts in terms of counting the number of children, um, foreign children within their borders? I would, I would love a comparative project on that. Uh, free idea. Okay. Yeah, we're launching all kinds of dissertations <laughs> and <laughs> comparative studies. It occurs to me that we, you know, we kind of dove into the deep end here. So I, let, let's just take a step back and to the edge of the pool and, get, and I'll stop this metaphor in a minute. But um, I, wa I want to just give you a chance to tell us a little bit, tell your listeners a little bit about kind of the main, um, you know, what you're really doing in this book, Fear of the Family, and, um, you know, how the family as a unit, as a category of analysis, as a bureaucratic category, you know, how it's functioning in your book and kind of thinking about the larger story you're telling about labor, migration, gender uh, in post-war Germany and, um, you know, thinking about what, 
the, you know, how, how workers are first brought into Germany and in the fifties and kind of how this plays, what, what so, kind of so-called social problems this starts to produce in the eyes of German authorities. And kind of, if you could just give us a little bit more of the story here and then, and then, and then we can go back to the deep end. Sure. Um, yeah, we did, we did jump in a little deep at the beginning, but I'll start with another anecdote because I'm a historian, so I can't help myself, um, which is kind of one of the aha moments that like led to the structure of the book as it stands. Um, when I went to the archives to tell people I wanted documents on family migration, they would invariably point me to files that said women migrants or child migrants, and they would never, ever point me to files that said male migrants even though I knew statistically that men also entered as family migrants, men are also members of families, just in a strictly technical sense. Um, And as I got frustrated with that, and I was like, where do I find these male migrants? I realized that that was, that was by design, right? Men and family migration didn't go together in the minds of the bureaucracy. Men shouldn't be family migrants. Men couldn't be family migrants. And that wasn't incidental, but it actually told us something about what family migration meant, right? States are not allowing family migration because they have an abstract respect for the importance of kinship ties in our world. They're allowing family migration because they see family migration as a way to access particular kinds of reproductive labor, usually performed by women. And as a secondary motivation in this book, because they see it as a way of protecting the rights of the vulnerable. Again, classically imagined as women and children and not men. So the fact that men and family migration doesn't come together in the archive isn't incidental. It's actually key to understanding what family migration is doing for the state. Uh, And so the book tries to show what family migration is doing for the state across a 50-year period. And we see that when... West Germany begins to recruit guest workers in the 1960s and 1970s, West Germany does something that is very unique, which is it recruits women to work in factory jobs through a guest worker program. It might be one of the only states to have done this. Um, And it doesn't seem to have realized at the time that this meant it was going to be bringing in married couples from day one because women were actually harder to get as laborers than men. Uh, There's these situations where like a woman who signs up in Turkey to become a guest worker, she'll be on a train to Germany next week. A man who signs up in Germany in Turkey to be a guest worker, he might have to wait 18 months to get called up. So migrants see this and they realize, Oh, we can send women ahead as pioneer migrants um, in order to accelerate our project of, labor migration and earning money. So you end up with a situation where the state's desire for female labor actually is um, turning women into pioneer migrants for their entire families and um, accelerating family migration well beyond what they intended. Um, These women are also bringing children with them for reasons that should be obvious. And the state is like, what? We didn't say you could bring your children with you. And there's just this shock that this gendered preference for labor has created a situation where all these things are happening that the state didn't anticipate. Um, And so it starts kind of looking at that situation during the active period of guest worker recruitment. That ends in 1973. 
Uh, but now people have won the right to have the state protect their family life to a certain degree. And so what happens kind of in the next 20 years of the book is the state is continually trying to limit family migration within constitutional limits. And migrants are constantly pushing back and trying to make their family plans and their um, visions of their future realized in the face of state anxiety about family migration. And again, this goes back to something we were talking about in the deep dive, which is uh, the way the family migration is shaped is, is deeply shaped by employers' love of cheap female workers. Um, and uh, there's no recognition of that in the bureaucracy. Um, they're like, how dare these women bring their husbands? Uh, they, they come pretty close to saying that a lot in the documents. Um, but these women dare bring their husbands because you told these women everything about our policy is set up for you to be the pioneer migrant here. We want you today. We want your husband in 18 months. Um, so that's a lot of what the book is about. Um, I think, too, one thing I was interested in was understanding kind of anti-migration policies today. And so if you've paid any attention to the news in Europe, you've heard an anti-migration politician saying something like, Muslim families are a threat to Europe because they don't share our gender values. Um, they, you know, they make, they supposedly make their women wear headscarves. They supposedly uphold patriarchal values. They're supposedly homophobic. These are things that are, are said as arguments against migration into Europe. Um, and I really think that the fact that politicians care so much about gender roles is really overdetermined by the fact that most legal migration has to happen through the family. So since the 1970s, the easiest, maybe not the easiest, but since the 1970s, most legal migrants into Europe have come as family members. It's their kinship tie to somebody already in Europe that is allowing them to come legally. And so if you're a politician who doesn't like that, the thing you have to do is say, these family ties are illegitimate. These are not the right kind of families. And so you have to directly attack their gender norms um, and their ways of setting up their families. So um, a lot of people have noticed how much gender and migration are intertwined in the European debate. And I really think that looking at like the legal basis of family reunification shows, helps to explain why that happened uh, in a way that's more satisfying for me personally. Um, than the also true fact that gender and race are mutually constitutive and always have been. I, I really appreciate that answer. It's um, so thought provoking and it, um, I, there's so many directions I one could go in here because, uh, you know, you, you talked earlier about the decision to become a historian or the Im impulse to study history, you know, really being motivated by the condition the world is in and trying to understand that condition and understanding that it, things don't have to be the way they are that we can kind of look for historical alternatives and so forth. And of course, when one reads this book today, it's hard not to think about, you know, it's clear the larger historical forces that may have shaped your interest uh, because they're so in the headlines today still. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I think you provide a really fascinating explanation of the way that gender and the, you know, how, how gender and sexuality work in the migration debate and, why the, you know, I'll putting up scare quotes here, the, the, the foreign 
you know, this kind of invasion of foreigners, quote unquote, is always understood as a gender threat, right? A threat to gender norms. Uh, right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was, I was, I was finishing this like between 2016 and 2022. So there was ample, uh, there was ample stuff in the headlines that was making me think, wow, uh, there's a lot going on here. Um, but really, uh, the conclusion actually, um, Sorry to jump ahead to the conclusion, but I, I tried in the conclusion to look at debates about family reunification for the Syrians who arrived in Germany in the summer of 2015. Um, the summer of migration, kind of a very important event in recent German political history. And it was it was wild, actually, because I printed out all of the Bundestag debates on um, family reunification that had happened since 2015. Like stack of paper 10 times the size of all the family reunification debates that had happened between 1955 and 2015. Um, so that was, that itself was interesting how much public interest the Syrian migration had uh, brought up in family issues. But then I was reading those stacks of paper and I just was like, I do these people know that they're, they're repeating themselves, right? Do they know um, the extent to which the arguments they're mobilizing in response to what they assume is an unprecedented crisis of Syrian migration into Germany are the same arguments that their predecessors mobilized 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, it really felt like I had, you know, I had already fed my dissertation into a, uh, AI and that AI had spit out these speeches to these politicians after 2015. Um, so I hope to kind of show that, that, um, if we don't know our history, we're also kind of condemned to repeat it, right? We're kind of um, condemned to think in the same patterns without recognizing that that's what we're doing because they're very, we're, it's very easy to get stuck in these patterns um, once they entrench themselves. And I think that's one thing the book shows as well. Absolutely. And I think one of, one of the interventions that I, I want to just highlight for a second that you make is this shift from notions of the kind of Southern family or Mediterranean family, right? Because after all, we're talking about people coming from Italy and Spain and Portugal, former Yugoslavia and Turkey. Uh, and kind of that there's this construct of the Southern family that you deal with and how that shifts to the Muslim family, right? And how this kind of racialized, racial, there, the racial, there, there is, if I read you correctly, already a racialized discourse about Portuguese and Spanish and Italians, but then it shifts to being also religious kind of mechanism of exclusion and othering. I think that's absolutely right. And again, this is something that like shocked me when I went into the archives, because again, I would kind of explain my project to colleagues and archivists. And I would say, I'm interested in family migration of guest workers. And they would say, oh, so you're interested in Turkish women. And like, there was this metonymic like shrinking of what was interesting. But then you actually read what people were saying at the time and you realized in the 60s, Spaniards created huge headaches for the bureaucracy. They were coming from this Franco dictatorship. Uh, Franco's dictatorship had this um, ossified version of state Catholicism with um, marriage laws that didn't allow divorced people to remarry. Uh, so Spaniards who were trying to marry Germans actually created massive legal headaches in the 60s that got interpreted in ways that were very... Um, progressive versus regressive kind of the gun interpreted in ways that suggested that the Germans were the modern ones with modern family law and the Spaniards had 
antiquated family law that had effectively come from the time of the Inquisition to now un- uninterrupted. You know, these, this is how people were talking about the Spanish marriage problem, what they called the Spanish marriage problem. So again, nothing in the public discourse of the 2010s had led me to expect that Spaniards once would have been seen as trouble migrants within the German context. But then once I dr- drilled down a lot, I saw that um, very similar things were repeated about Spaniards, Italians, Portuguese in the 50s, as were repeated about Turks and Yugoslavs in the 70s. And I thought, this is a thing of, we need kind of an anti-modern referent to define ourselves against. This is how self-definition works by creating otherized groups. And what's happened is the group has shifted. And I think right, we have to think about something we don't think about as much as we should in European studies, which is how Northern Europe has always kind of defined itself against Southern Europe um, because you just constantly saw ideas that Germans were on one side and then the Southerner um, as a homogenizing category from Lisbon to Istanbul, the Southerner thought one way and the German thought another way, which shows that there's right ways of um, ways of stereotyping and ways of thinking about difference that are, uh, both more entrenched and less entrenched than we might imagine. Um, because if, if Spaniards can become, can go from being troublesome migrants to uh, desirable migrants in 50 years, things can change. <laughs> but also we need to understand how the stereotype is just continually reproducing itself. I also think this is again an invitation for another project for someone to do, but I was really interested in thinking about the long religious history of Germany as a place that's tended to understand itself as a Protestant nation. And it's first in West Germany that you actually get a German state that's half Protestant and half Catholic and has to figure out how to make these two things work together. And so I feel like some of the over the top reactions to Spaniards and Italians um, are about like a lingering anti-Catholicism, like the Kulturkampf mm-hmm. kind of still. A hundred years later. A hundred years later, um, because you see the same, pro- you see the same ideas, right? Um, Spanish women only listen to what their husbands say. They're dangerous workers for this reason. Like, thank you, Bismarck. Um, uh, here we are again. So I think, too, there might be something to be said about how um, anti-Islamic and anti-Muslim attitudes today are not unrelated to a tradition of anti-Catholicism within um, Protestant thought. That's, I mean, and that's not the kind of thing that would you would think of without, you know, reading, reading your book, Lauren, or, or <laughs> doing this kind of work. It sounds so counterintuitive, but, but I think you're really convincing me that there's this, that this operation of othering, it's going, you know, that's a kind of fundamental operation of the modern state here. And right. And the, what changes is not the fact of the othering, just kind of how, how that dynamic is, is playing out. It's funny. I think, um, again, it's a bit of a hypothesis. I'm inviting a grad student to write this dissertation, please. I want to read it. But I think I was actually also able to see it because I'd written um, a master's thesis on Swiss discourses of othering, which are, again, surprising to me because I went into the project thinking Italian is one of the four official languages of Switzerland. Surely Italian guest workers coming to Switzerland isn't going to cause problems. Uh, And then finding that 
it caused a lot of problems because Italians were seen as non-Swiss and as these eternal others and were otherized in ways that were about their Catholicism versus Swiss religiosity that were about their backwardness um, as opposed to Swiss modernity. And so I think kind of actually doing that project of Switzerland helped me to see the same dynamics at work in Germany. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I wonder if this, maybe, maybe this is a good moment to switch to thinking about another kind of othering and you know, specifically the Nazi past and the German history of anti-Semitism through the Holocaust and kind of how that plays itself, how that kind of sits there as um, a counterexample, as a set of discourses that get mobilized in really intriguing ways um, in policies and debates around family migration. Um, yeah, so there's um, a few things I could say about the Nazi past. Uh, I guess a, a Germanist should always be able to say a few things about the Nazi past, um, but but how it how it worked here. Um, I think again, I had kind of come into this with an understanding of the liberalization of West Germany and the kind of recognition of rights is um, a reaction to Nazism, right? It's a way of overcoming that past of kind of putting that legacy behind of implementing liberal human rights based ideas into law and into um, into the state uh, in order to put that behind. And so again, when I came to the archives, I realized that some of my bureaucrats, I realized two things. One was that I realized that some of my bureaucrats uh, were operating from an understanding of the Nazi past as actually telling them something about how having minorities in the state was dangerous, um, that there was a way to tell the story of um, the Third Reich as this was inevitable in a state that wasn't homogenous. And so in order to not have that happen again, we have to keep our state homogenous and not let it become diverse. And so that was really shocking to me um, and not right what I wanted to believe about states and not, I thought, the only lesson you could take from the past um, or even a very good lesson to take from the past. But I understood that some of my bureaucrats were kind of operating on these subterranean assumptions about diversity isn't inherently and inevitably dangerous for the modern state. And that they were taking that from their understanding of why uh, the Third Reich had had murdered its minorities. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I realized, um, and again, I never would have, uh, I'm a big proponent of the archives because I never would have gotten this if I hadn't gone to the archives, was that these folks were getting a lot of hate mail and they were just filing it against everything else. Um, it was it was bizarre how often I would open a folder titled something like foreigners in this city and there would be something about a integration program for families and something about a legal change and then there would just be 10 letters from members of the public who really wanted the state to know how much they hated immigration and so again and, and those people were not shy about using language drawn directly from Nazi ideology. And so realizing again that these bureaucrats are getting, one of their publics is the people who are writing letters with Nazi 
um, Nazi language in them. And so if that's one of their publics, and maybe they see that constituency as more their public than immigrants, you can see again how they're able to kind of justify pretty dehumanizing policies to themselves. Uh, So part of it was a really subterranean legacy of the Nazi past that I saw in the bureaucratic imagination. And part of it was, oh, yes, there are neo-Nazis still walking among us and they are our voters. Um, And what are we going to do about that becomes a question I think the bureaucrats are asking themselves. Which, again, resonates very much today in light of, you know, what's happening in our country and many other places. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, right. The State Department is getting letters, I'm sure, is getting letters saying we would love you to build that wall. So, like, how are they going to react to this? Are they going to say, yeah, this is a legitimate political opinion that I should be keeping in mind when I'm crafting policy? Or are they going to not say that? And can you ever... If that's what the if that's where the far right of the discourse is, right? How how do you insulate yourself against that? Um, right, and it, oh sorry. Oh yeah, yeah no, that's... <laughs> I mean, I, I I should know better than to be shocked by these things. You'd think after all these years of studying German history, but yeah, <laughs> right. But the persistence of racism, of downright Nazi attitudes toward people who are different, um, I still found that pretty shocking in the book. I will say, too, that I don't want to make it also like a a Germany-exclusive story. One of the other things that's kind of shocking in the book is realizing just how terrible British and French policies on family migration were in this period. Um, But those policies get understood as aberrations in their tradition of liberalism, whereas the German policy gets understood as a legacy of Nazism. But in some places in the book, they're kind of actually the same policy, or the British and French actually have worse policies than the Germans, but our narratives about what these nations are mean that we interpret those policies differently. So yeah, just the Nazi policies, the Nazi past is definitely shaping this, but I think it's also, um, I think it's also important to realize that like liberalism has plenty of room to, um, it has plenty of room within it to say, let's ban family migration, which France and the UK both do at different times during the period I discuss here. Yeah, that's, I mean, I really wanted to bring up liberalism or specifically neoliberalism and, you know, the market, the market logic here, um, the kind of punishing and brutal logic of the market. And I, I, it hadn't occurred to me, but I can see how the, in the French and British case, it's the, the discourse around family migration is often framed in a post-colonial context, right? Whereas in the German case, it's often framed in a post-Nazi way. But in some ways, those differences might be more superficial than the kind of larger economic political apparatus behind the policy. Oh, that's an interesting point. And I think, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting hypothesis. Yeah, because we, we see, again, when I was studying this, I realized that France and the UK and Germany sometimes had the same policy, but they were interpreted differently, as you just put it. And so is this is the past the most relevant context or is um, the way that economies in post-war Europe, post-war Western Europe are organized the most relevant question? I don't have an answer to that, but I guess I, I, pro- I propose some ways to study it here um, because I do kind of make some arguments about how the context of how families interact with the welfare state is shaping the way in which uh, Germany is looking at its migrants. Um, And yes, I I, I kind of 
I read a lot of theory. <laughs> I'm happy to talk about that more if people want to hear me talk about it. But um, I was reading a lot of Ulrich Beck um, and Elizabeth Beck Gernsheim, um, who I think are great. And I think Ulrich Beck has a good take on gender because I think he took his wife seriously as an interlocutor. Thank you, Ulrich Beck. Thank you, Elizabeth Gebecker in time. So I was reading a lot of those two theorists um, and realizing like, oh, the risk society is also a story about the marketization of society. And a lot of what Beck says in the risk society and Becker in time says in some of her work on the family, um, I was seeing in the archives in ways that eventually led me to theorize this is also a story about neoliberalism. That's I'm glad you brought up those two, and I'm wondering if there are other theoretical or historiographic voices you would want to mention as being kind of key shapers of the project. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know how obvious it is when I read when you read the book, but um, I, I read a lot of theory, and I think historians should. Um, so I you read a lot of theory clearly, but you don't talk. You you're, you kind of bring it up in a. I think a subtle. You spoon feed it, or you don't kind of hit the reader over the head with it. Um, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Not everyone likes um, hefty doses of Foucault with their with their empirically based studies of legal culture. But uh, <laughs> but reading Foucault helped me with this. So yeah, I mentioned earlier queer history did a lot for me, and so queer theory was a big influence. Um, I'm thinking of folks like um, Fatima Al-Tayyab, uh, Jin Haridawan, um, and then the kind of U.S.-based queer historians I mentioned earlier. I also, Foucault's a big influence on the project, especially the, the lectures on neoliberalism. Um, Beck and Beck's Gernsheim are big influences. And then Wendy Brown uh, and kind of feminist theory, um, thinking about how do we mobilize claims about gender i would say like wendy brown evelyn nakano glenn and kind of the whole wages for housework collective and what came out of that so uh yes i read a lot of theory and i I think it it helps in stepping back from what is a really messy set of individual cases that um seem so particular are so particular uh in in their details and every time and to help see, well, what's the structure here? Like, how do we how do we turn this into more than a story of like ten terrible um, ten terrible family separations that happened in the nineteen eighties? Well, why is family separation happening again and again? Like, what's actually motivating um, the state's deportation? And so, yeah, those are not all, but some of the folks who kind of really influenced this um, and are gently spoon-fed in the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really do mean that as a compliment that the the theory is, there are texts where I find the theory to be a distraction or un, maybe unnecessary or excessive, but here it kind of, it's blended, I think, very well with the analysis or kind of the analysis is obviously theoretically informed, but it's presented kind of in a much more empirical way, at least in my reading of it. Thank you. Yeah, that's um, that's what I was going for. So I'm really glad that it, it worked for at least uh, at least one reader. Um, and yeah, again, once I realized that reproductive labor was a category my bureaucrats were always thinking with, but they were just calling it women's work, that really that opened up a lot for me. Once I realized that their assumptions about women were a way for them to say, "Hey, reproductive labor actually does make the state run. What are we going to do without it?" Um, which is kind of the story of a couple of the chapters. 
Yeah, and I want to ask you this: if this question maybe will come a little roundabout, but what I, what I want to get at is, I think what your work again, you know, think, keeping graduate students in mind and others who are starting new projects. I, I think one of the things you've really contributed here is, as we've started to talk about already a bit the um, kind of talking about the limitations of the archive or the need to read the archives against the grain. And I'm thinking of how, again, I'm my familiarity with the topic was fairly superficial before I read your work, but I, I never really thought of the guest worker question as a gendered question because it's not presented that way in the, in the works that I'd read about it anyway. Um, right. And I haven't taught it that way. And I, I of course I, I will in the future. Um, thanks to you. But um, again, it's not a question that had ever been really linked to gender or even or sexuality in, in my mind, right? And the, the 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 family. I never thought that carefully about how it, you know, how somebody got to be a guest worker in Germany in the first place, and what that process was, and what impact that had on their family, in all kinds of ways, right? Or the gender preference of German employers. So. There's that, but then there's also the way that the administrative sources are kind of um, also very blindsided or, you know, not seeing the full extent of the problem or kind of creating new problems, as we talked about a little earlier in our discussion. Every attempt to solve one set of what they see as problems, you know, only creates new problems, Um you know, we, we want families to come because we don't want, for example, Ger- we don't want Turkish men or Italian men to have relationships with German women, right? Um, so they bring their wives and that'll, but then, oh, but then they're going to have children with their, right? And, and then we've got more non-native Germans coming into Germany and what are we going to do with them? And do we send them, right? So, you know, every attempt to kind of come up with an economically efficient and rational solution seems to generate what then are perceived as social problems. And I, but I don't, but it's, to me, it's really eye opening how, if you just read the bureaucratic sources, you're not going to see the problems. And so, you know, you are able to read against the grain and to bring in this theoretical literature to unpack this issue and all of its complexity. So I just wondered if you could, and I'm sorry that this is such a, a, an indirect question, but talk about kind of how, when the blindfold came off your eyes or, you know, what moments in the archive or in the pre-archival work or post-archival work where you really got the, where the project came together? Huh. Uh, I think there's a few, that's a great question. I think there's a few moments. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'll start with um, something that I talk about in the introduction, which is the first time I went to the archives I was typing the wrong word into the search catalogs. I was coming in thinking I was looking for familien zusammenführung because that's how I had seen it referred to in a lot of the literature. Every catalog I typed that into, nothing about my topic came up. And I was like, I know these people migrated. I know there was family migration. What happened? Um, and then it really, I realized, oh, they're not referring to this using familien zusammenführung. They're using referring to this using familien nachzug. So there's two different words to refer to family migration and familien nachzug doesn't appear to have existed before the 1960s in the German language. I can find no trace of it. So this is actually a category that's been generated to deal with the family uh, migrations of guest workers. Uh, 
you know, I don't have a smoking gun on that. Duden didn't like leave me a memo saying, this is, this is now the word we're going to use for this. But you see bureaucrats kind of gradually drifting from Zusammenführung to Nachzug over time, talking about the same families, the same kind of migration. And so you're seeing there how a kind of second class kind of family migration is being generated out of the dilemmas brought up by guest workers. Um, and again, that was like a very difficult couple of days in the archives where I was like, this project is impossible. No one has ever written about this until I realized there was another word that I could type in to the search engines to find something. Uh, and I think that's the beauty and the horror of working in not your first language um, that I, I didn't know that word intuitively, but I was able to, because everything about German is a little strange to me, I'm able to kind of puzzle it out maybe more. Um, then I think the second is, and maybe this is good advice for grad students to always read multiple kinds of sources at the same time. Um, so as I was saying earlier, the state archives are kind of constantly throwing up the problem of men as family migrants and like, why are they here? Why are they calling themselves family members? What's happening? Um, one of the kind of most shocking examples uh, is there's a man who wants to migrate and the court says no to join his wife. And the court says no. And he says, but I'm going to do childcare. We have two young children. And the court says, men don't do childcare. What are you talking about? Um, I think the literal quote is, it is uncommon in the Western countries that men take care of children. Uh, I read that. I think this was like a 74 or 75 quote. And I was like, you think migrants are the sexist ones? Like, like, I don't know whether this guy intends to do child care or not, but you are preventing him from doing it by preventing him from entering the country. Um, so that I was really, I was like sitting with that. Um, the fact that this guy had claimed he was going to do child care and the court had not believed him. And then I read um, uh, something by a kind of an activist writer where she talks to a woman who says, um, Oh, this, she's talking about another woman she knows. And she says, oh, this woman was in a really bad situation because her husband was a family member. Again, I was like, aren't all husbands family members? Like, isn't that kind of the definition of a husband? Um, I've never met a husband who wasn't a family member. Uh, that's, that's what that word means. But then thinking about that more, I was like, oh, what she means is he's a migrant family member. And so what that means at this time is he's barred from working for wages. So if you have a situation where a heterosexual couple is living in Germany and the man is the family member and can't work legally for wages, you have a situation where the person who could be pulling in higher wages can't, is barred from doing that legally. And so you're shaping the way that this family can survive in a way that, um, we have to take account of to understand the reality of migrant lives in this period, right? Like the reason she said the husband is a family member as if this was a problem for this woman is because within the migration bureaucracy, it was. Uh, and so hopefully that kind of answers your question. I wouldn't have gotten to that if I hadn't constantly been reading other kinds of sources alongside state sources. And it, it, yeah, again, it really um, strikes me the way the um this kind of the state 
the state is understanding the kind of the Turkish family as somehow pathological or, you know, other and sexist while it's, you know, just with racism and sexism, both it's kind of perpetrating these very uh, um, kinds of uh, practices, which it's at the same time critiquing in the other um, and in a kind of, right. It's just so. um, Right. Cause you fast forward 20 years and what um, the politicians are saying is Turkish men are sexist. Well, the court just said men don't do childcare. Like, I think you're both like there's sexism on both sides here. Like maybe we should grapple with this. Um, so that was, that was really interesting to me. And then I think another thing, um, I just say one more thing, which was the, um, if you know one sentence about migration, it's like the Max Frisch quote, right? Workers were called for and people came. People would like say that to me when I present their project. They'd be like, Oh, so you're, you know, not really building on the inside of Max Frisch. Um, when people were being pretty dismissive of the project at the beginning, um, that workers were called for and people came. Well, we all miscite the Max Frisch quote because it's not, it's not workers were called for and people came. It's a small master race feels itself in danger. Workers were called for and people came. So we've all collectively forgotten the first half of the quote and so forgotten how race is playing in here, how the Nazi past is playing in here, how this isn't, this is also a story about the state and its fears. Um, and the state and its desire to maintain homogeneity. Uh, so I hope if one, if people get one thing from this book, please quote the Max Frisch quote in its full, uh, and kind of grapple, grapple with the fact that he, he had a whole sentence and, um, we've collectively decided that we only quote the second clause. Which ends up being such a platitude anyway, right? It's so having read your book and it's, it's so unsatisfying to just leave right. off with that, right? Yeah, because you uh, see, it wasn't people who came, right? It was men, it was women, it was children, it was people who were positioned um, in different ways uh, based on so much more than just being people. So, and they're uh, coming, they're coming to Germany is just the beginning of when the story gets really interesting, at least as you tell it, right? That's when that's when they grapple with having families being, you know, the, the gendering of labor. Again, just uh, grappling with like, um, to go back to something you said earlier too. Um, I don't think anyone had ever asked before, like what happens to childcare for these people? Because again, we don't think of childcare as work, right? We just assume it happens in places we don't see COVID uh, has, has slightly um, brought up this, this realization that childcare is work and that somebody has to do it. It, the children won't care for themselves. Um, I'd come to that realization when I, I went to the German um, Council of Municipalities archives and every single city they talked to said, we have a child care problem. We don't know who's going to care for the children of the guest workers. And again, I don't think, we don't tend to think a lot about child care when we think about what guest workers do, what the role they play in German society. But it turns out the city administrators were really concerned about childcare and realized that somebody had to do it um, well before COVID happened. <laughs> um, did they, did they adequately compensate it um, or, 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 or like create policies I would agree with about that? No, but um, they did realize that somebody needed to do childcare. Uh, and I think we can give them credit for that. They saw the problem in the way that bureaucrats in Bonn couldn't see the problem, even if they right. had no real solutions to the problem. Right, because again, the bureaucrats in Bonn don't know how many children are in this, the country. They don't have 
because they don't have residence permits, they can't count the children. The city administrators are talking to the city social workers who are saying, there's just kids playing on the streets. Um, what are we going to do with this in our town, in our small town, where we know where we see each other and where we see these problems on a human level. So again, like different levels of the bureaucracy might process it differently, right? The bond level might only process what's happening at the border, but then it's the city level. Um, and here I'm also indebted to historians like Mark Spica who have shown this. It's at the city level um, that certain kinds of problems are going to become more obvious, right? It's not bond who's paying for the kindergarten. It's uh, the man in the, office in the small town where there's a big factory. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. I wonder um, if we could just briefly take the story up to the present, if, you know, how with the change in citizenship laws um, after unification and a bit more recently, how that has affected the issue of family migration and labor? Sure. Uh, yeah. So the final chapter of the book does uh, talk a little bit about how I think the history of family migration regulation um, impacted what becomes the citizenship law change in uh, 1990-2001. And so one really interesting thing that other scholars have noticed about that citizenship reform is it's much more generous to children than it is to adults, right? It actually makes it easier for children to naturalize, which is good. Um, but it still is a little doubtful about full adults who have experienced their socialization outside of Germany naturalizing. Uh, and so I thought that that dynamic had a lot to do with debates about parents and children as they express themselves during um, the decades of debate about family migration and shaped the way that that came out. Uh, I know the current coalition government in Germany is kind of thinking about further changes to citizenship law, which is, you know, remains to be seen. Um, there's a lot that they've promised to do, and we'll see kind of what they're able to build political will for. Uh, but it's really, the issue of family never goes away, right? The issue of, because it can't, because it is the issue of how do we regulate reproductive labor. It is the issue of who's going to do the child care and who's going to do the elder care. And um, what does it mean to raise ch socialized children and German values? So that issue is never going to go away. And so I'd encourage people when they kind of see stories about migration to think about family and to think about how the figure of the family is being mobilized to make you think a particular thing about the migrants who are coming. Um, one, one way this is often mobilized negatively is um, in discussions of refugees who come to Europe across the Mediterranean. Um, often it's young men. And so that, that fact is often used to suggest, well, can they be real refugees if they're all young men? And what's happening there is, a, is we're all making assumptions about how men and women act. And so based on our assumptions about how men and women act, we're interpreting this in a particular way. So I think it's, there's always gender at work. And I hope my book will kind of encourage people to ask how it's working in uh, whatever the migration issue of the day is. I'm, I'm certain it will. And I think um, this issue is only getting more and more important and urgent for politicians, activists, historians to tackle. And I think your book will 
you know, I certainly hope your book will play a role in how people think about both, you know, not only historically and in Europe, but kind of more broadly around the world, how, um, how these issues are being understood. Um, and I, you've been so generous with your time. I, I hesitate to take more, but I, I do, <laughs> I do want to ask in kind of customary new books network fashion, um, if you could tell us a bit about what you're working on now, I know you have several pro- current projects, um, going, so, um, please um, share with listeners anything you'd care to talk about. Sure. So, uh, yeah, my contribution to Future Books Network. (laughs) Um, I I am working on a couple of different projects, um, and so they kind of refract some of the topics of my first book in their own ways. Um, One is actually picking up that initial interest in queer history and sexuality to really um, work on bisexuality as an analytic category, So bisexuals in queer history as it stands are kind of like the husband as family member. Like, they're there, technically. You do a control F and you'll find them, but they're always only part of the acronym. We're not actually asking, like, how bisexuality might work as an analytic category that's different from gay and lesbian as analytic categories. And so one of my projects is to work on that a little bit and kind of go back to classic moments in queer history, of which Germany has a lot, and show that actually including bisexuality in the analysis does something. And I I can say more about that, but I think bisexuality is an interesting category because it does both uphold and refuse the binaries that uh, we so love when we make categories. Uh, Then my second project, um, I'm thinking about the era since the 1970s. So the, the same era as my first book, but through the perspective of thinking about jet travel Um, So this is the period that's defined by the increasing availability of jet travel, but also it's increasing regulation as people beyond a very narrowly defined elite start to access it. So I'm interested in kind of the kinds of travelers that mass jet travel has produced, right? Who's the jet age refugee? Who's the frequent flyer? Um, Who's the expatriate who's now able to fly back and forth to their home country more regularly than they were a hundred years ago. Um, and so it's really trying to ask like, well, what, how has jet travel shaped globalization and how have attempts to regulate jet travel kind of led to the racialized and classed forms of mobility we see today? Um, yeah. So I can say more about that, but jet travel, bisexuality, those are two of the things I'm, I'm thinking about a lot. Uh, and I think they both kind of pick up on themes in the first book uh, in terms of thinking about how do we think about people on the move and what are the assumptions we're making about gender that we don't realize we're making. It, I think we're living in a moment of kind of a real explosion of new research and new currents uh, around history of sexuality. And I mean, not just in Germany, but that's, you know, that's uh, maybe reflecting how I, what I read, but certainly in German history and German studies. And it's just really exciting to see how this field is developing and how you're contributing to that field. And, um, and likewise with the jet travel, I, I feel like the, um, you know, the materiality that of, of the refugee experience or the kind of the, 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 the means of getting, you know, we, we too often think about just the fact of migration without the kind of term, looking at the terms and material conditions 
during the migration process. And again, it kind of comes from my my archival wanderings because, right, I'm somebody whose most of my jet travel life has been since September 11th, right? So I think of airports as like sterile places with lots of security um, where nothing ever really happens. And that is, in fact, a lot of what jet travel literature seems. They're non-places, right? That's what they are in the globalization literature. But in the archives, I kept coming across really weird things happening in airports. And I was like, how is any of this possible? Uh, and so and so, um, kind of peeling back how jet travel has changed over time. And then also asking, right, like, jet travel has changed our world in ways we don't fully appreciate. So what does a world actually look like after the jet, if that's what we're going to because of our climate emergency? Um, and how how can we start to grapple with um, what a mobility justice and climate justice perspective might require of our our current approach to long distance travel? Great, that that's really I can't think of more urgent issues to to <laughs> deal with. So it's it's really great to hear yeah, that you're I doing. I like to the, dive for the for the for the for the headlines. I just yeah, you're, not shying, you're not shying away from the, uh, the tough topics. <laughs> Well, I really want to thank you for spending this time here today. It's just been so fascinating to learn, to, you know, to delve deeply into this book and to learn about some of the other things you've been working on. So thank you so much for, for speaking with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been, it's been lovely.